We turn to perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. And there we center our discussion on the Christian faith. We want to consider uh, the Christian faith in its subjective aspects. Subjective here is not a bad thing. More on that in a moment. Its subjective aspect and its objective aspect. As we consider not only that we are to believe, but what are we to believe in? What are we to believe in? John 3.16, this is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us as we come to this truth of the Christian faith from your word to, Father, to understand it rightly, to understand it according to your word, that, Father, we would prove our doctrine from your word. Uh, Father, not proof texting, not taking uh, and cherry picking one thing and isolating others, but, Father, looking at this truth in its totality from your word. Help us now and illumine our hearts and our minds to love you and to understand, Father, this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a marvel of nature that you can take a branch from one tree and take it and cut it off and attach it to another tree, to a living tree, such that now... In that grafting of the branch to a living tree, that tree gives its, its new branch all the vitality and all the life through its sap. I don't know much about horticulture. I know that that is possible and oftentimes is done to create new breeds of apples and, and such uh, fruit. And there are two general things that have to be true. For grafting to work. First of all, there needs to be a union between the branch and the living tree. Uh, You won't ever have a grafting if you don't have a union between the branch and the living tree. It seems commonsensical enough. And then the second thing that needs to happen is that there needs to be a tree that that branch is united to. And in many ways, that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the, the, the nature of faith in its subjective and objective aspects. And so if we are to receive the blessings of God, if we are to receive everything that Christ has and is, then we must be united to him. We cannot remain distant and far from him. We must be as a branch to a living tree, united to our savior. And then of course, the second thing that needs to happen is that not only are we to believe and be united, but we are, be, we are to believe in Christ We are to be united to Christ. There must be a living tree that we are grafted into. The union and the tree are supremely important. If a branch is to receive the vitality and the sap and the life from the tree. And so it is with us. The union that we have with Christ is vitally important. It nourishes us. It enlivens us. It it resurrects us. But we must be united, not just to any Jesus. We must be 
those who believe, but not just in any Jesus. We must believe in this Jesus. We must be united to the Jesus that is revealed to us by God in his word. And so we look at the subjective aspects, both the necessity of personal faith and the characteristics of personal faith. What subjective and objective here mean simply is this, that we are those who believe. We are the subjects of faith. We are those who believe, right? But the object of our faith is God, the triune God and his work. The triune God is that which we are believing in and all that he is and all that he has done for us. So we've been speaking first then about the necessity of the faith. We've been speaking about Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and man. He's perfect God become perfect man to return us to God. So how do we take hold of the Savior for ourselves? The Bible tells us that it is necessary to believe in him. It's not the case that the Bible teaches universalism, right? It doesn't matter what you believe. Everyone's going to heaven. The Bible condemns universalism. And that's so explicit in question 20 and answer 20, right? Will all men be saved through Christ as they were lost through Adam? Right? No, no, they won't be. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. So you see what's it's saying here, what the Heidelberg is saying is that we must take hold of this Christ ourselves and, and so move from the state of misery and guilt to receive all of Christ's benefits. In John 3.16, it's so abundantly clear, right, that God so loves the world that he gives in that action of self-sacrificing love, he gives his son but people stop there and they say, well, God loved the world. God loves me. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. No, not so, not so fast. God so loved the world that whosoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You personally must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because only those who believe in Christ are saved. Notice continually that the Bible doesn't teach that it's what you do or what you don't do. It's by works. No, none of that. You have life only when you readily confess that you have no life and that it's only abundantly and exclusively found in Jesus Christ. And so you see, faith must be, in this sense, a, a passive thing that we do. It's, it's a resting. Faith is a resting in Christ's work for us, right? Israel did not deliver itself. Israel was delivered from Egypt. Sheep are rescued by the shepherd. A house is built by God to be his dwelling place. Orphans are adopted by the Heavenly Father. And so we come to the imagery we started out with a branch doesn't graft itself into the tree but rather a branch is grafted into the tree by another and being grafted by the spirit through the word into christ we receive his life-giving nourishment and vitality in union with christ there's a supernatural seamless organic flow of life from christ to all of his members 
we'll have opportunity in future weeks to talk about more this, this wondrous doctrine of union with Christ. But you see, in short here, in, in summary fashion, we can say that all that is in Christ is now ours. His life is mine. His death is mine. His righteousness is mine. His obedience is mine. His power is mine. His resurrection is mine. His glorification is mine. His access into heaven is mine. All that is in Christ, all that Christ is, is mine. Where he is, I am presently. We've been raised to heaven above, Colossians 3 says. And where he is, I one day, and we one day by faith will be completely but you see how how is this all yours only by faith only by faith this is one of the greatest burdens of the new testament and especially of john the apostle in his gospel account he repeatedly calls us to believe in christ to believe in christ in john 1 12 we're told that jesus came to his own but his own did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believe in his name he gave the right to become children of God. In John 3, our chapter, verse 16, we see, the, we see this readily enough. We see this in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But notice the converse is true as well. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then again, it's repeated in verse 36 of chapter three of John. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In John nine, when Jesus heals that man who was born blind at the very end of that chapter, he says to him, do you believe in the son of man? When Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, he tells Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus turns to them and then he turns through them. He's turning to us and says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, Jesus isn't just asking that question of people then and there. He's asking that question of you here and now. And then in John 20, the very end of the gospel account, John tells us that Jesus did so many signs, more than he can ever include in his gospel account. But why? Why were these included? John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Jesus didn't do all these miracles to show us how impressive he is. Jesus didn't do all these miracles to, to show us his power in the first instance. Jesus didn't do all of these miracles because he's some kind of, you know, humanistic miracle worker, some kind of shaman, some kind of healer. No, Jesus did all of these signs so that we would believe in him. So that we would believe in him. And you see, that's the burden of the New Testament. And that's the burden of the catechism here. That by faith we are engrafted through the Spirit, by the Spirit's power, into Christ. So who, who enjoys these benefits of Christ? Those who believe in Christ. Now, to be sure, the catechism could have answered this question in so many different ways, right? The, the Heidelberg Catechism could have answered this question from the perspective of election. 
It could have answered the question from the perspective of regeneration. And to be sure, election is biblical, regeneration is biblical, right? These are legitimate starting points, right? The catechism could have said, you will have eternal life only when you are chosen from eternity past. Or you will have eternal life only when you are born again, when you are regenerated by the Spirit of God. But that's not how the catechism answers the question. The catechism answers from the human side of things, only by faith in Christ Jesus. And we need to pause and ask the question, why? Because you see, the catechism is interested in how you're responding to Christ. Are you believing in Christ or not? Christ saves those and only those who believe in him. Not election, which is unknowable, not regeneration, which is unprovable, but active faith in Christ is the starting point for this conversation. And in fact, that's really the starting point. And and the catechism here wonderfully is teaching us how to approach other believers and how to approach conversations with those who seem unbelievers, right? They might want to start with the, the mystery of election and regeneration, right? Well, how do I know? How do I know that I'm saved? Am I elect? How do I know that I'm saved? Am I born again? Forget all of that for a moment, the catechism is saying. Do you actively believe in Jesus Christ? That's what matters. The catechism, you see, meets us in the here and now. Not in election, not in regeneration, but in the nitty gritty of our covenantal obligations to our creator and our redeemer. The catechism is saying, don't try to peer into the mysteries of God or the recesses of your heart. Look out, look outward. Look at the public historical record of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this Jesus who is revealed in the pages of scripture? Do you rest in his work for you? Do you trust this Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for your standing before God, for eternal life and reconciliation with God through his death? Do you believe in this Jesus? Yes or no? Yes or no? We must, we must respond by faith, not because of election, not because of regeneration, but active, present, lively faith in Jesus Christ. So what is faith? Secondly, the characteristics of faith, and we're still here in this first point, the subjective aspect of faith. We're told in the catechism, a very classic definition. Faith is not only a sure knowledge, question and answer 21. It's not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. That God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. There's so much that could be said here but perhaps the best way to consider this is in the classic Latin terminology. Noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. What is true faith? Faith, true faith, biblical faith knows. That's what noticia means in Latin. We must know God. We must believe God's word is true. 
The Christian faith cannot be boiled down to simply knowledge. We are more than walking brains on a stake, right? As much as we emphasize um, knowledge, there are other things to be emphasized. The Christian faith, in other words, is more than knowledge, but it's not less. It's not less than knowledge. We must know God's word to be true. And then a census. We must have a conviction that God's word is true. We must not just know theoretically, but we must be convinced that that is true. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus was raised for my sins. This is no myth. This is no fiction. This is true. But more than this, You can have belief, you can have conviction, but you must have trust. You must have what the catechism calls a deep-rooted trust that God's word is true. Faith, in other words, believes in God, noticia. It agrees with God, a census, and then it entrusts one life, fiducia, to God that he has forgiven your sins and has given you eternal life and righteousness, and salvation. And this is true, not only theoretically, this is true experientially. This is not true of others only, but it's true of me. That's why the catechism has the the first person singular. It is true of me. He has done this for me. He was crucified for me. He was raised for me. You must believe Christ died. You must be convinced of Christ's death for you and you must entrust your life and eternity to Christ crucified and raised for your sins and you must do this for yourself. This is, these are in essence the three characteristics, the three traits, the three aspects of subjective faith, of the personal faith that we have in Christ. Faith is not private. It's never private, but it must be personal. You, you must believe. And here you can appreciate the Reformation context of the catechism, right? The Roman church, the Romanist church, what we today call the Roman Catholic church, taught implicit faith, right? It doesn't matter what you may or may not believe. As long as you know the priest who believes these things, you're, you're fine. You're covered, right? And the catechism here says, no, no, you must believe it. It's not, it's not enough that you go to church. It's not enough that you are around others that believe it. This doesn't work by osmosis. You must personally take hold of Christ. You must believe in him and entrust your life to him. But then, <clears throat> thirdly, the necessity of personal faith, the characteristics of per- personal faith. But then what is the foundation of personal faith? And here we talk about the Christian faith. The foundation of our personal faith, which we are to have believing in God, is the Christian faith. The foundation of the subjective is the objective. We must believe in question 22, all that God has promised us in the gospel. That is to say, we must believe what the triune God has done to secure our salvation. We cannot believe nor have faith unless there is something to believe in. Yes, biblical faith has a subjective component. You must believe, you must trust. But biblical faith, first and foremost, has an objective component. In other words, 
the Christian faith existed way before you were born. The Christian faith existed before you arrived on the scene. The Christian faith, you see, is composed not of you trusting and believing in the first instance. The Christian faith, rather, is what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did to secure your redemption. And faith in this objective sense is also found in Scripture. Look at a number of passages. Well, just look at one passage. I'll mention a few others. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 3, or Jude 3, given that Jude only has one chapter. Jude Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, notice the language, for the faith that was once delivered for all uh, to the saints. Contend for the faith. What's it talking about here? What's the apostle talking about? Is he saying... That you would have people and persuade people to keep believing in God? No. He's saying contend for that apostolic deposit that was given to you for once for all time to all the saints. In uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, right? Paul there talks about how some will depart from the faith. He says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have kept the faith. So when the Bible calls you to believe and trust, the Bible is calling you to believe and trust God's person and work. And John 3.16 tells us as much, right? That whosoever believes, knows, is convinced of, and entrusts his life. But you must believe in what? You must believe in him. In the one that was sent by the Father, in Jesus Christ, not the one that you imagine, but the one that is revealed in the historical record of Scripture. You must believe in His person. You must believe in His work. Who is Jesus and what did He do? That is the content. That is, those are the component parts of the Christian faith in its objective sense. So it's, it's very clear. We, we must make this very clear. We must underline this and underscore this. That faith is not first a personal subjective trust. It is that you must believe in God. You must believe in a triune God. But first and foremost, it is the objective revelation of God given by God to his church. A doctrinal deposit that the church is to preserve, that the church is to teach to all future generations. For the church to be the church, she must actually have a belief that she possesses, that she believes. She must have a confession of truth that she then confesses. She must have a faith that she trusts. Without the Christian faith objectively understood as this apostolic deposit found exclusively in the word of God, the church can have no Christian faith. And here you see, you can appreciate how the catechism responds 
not only to Rome, but to the vast majority of the evangelical church in stark contrast to the American church, right? The American church says faith is only subjective, right? Hey, you have to believe. Hey, you have to keep trusting. You have to keep believing. Just believe. Just hope. Believe in what? Believe in what? Believe in what man has said? Believe in the, the Jesus that man has constructed? Or believe in the objective word of God? Faith is not merely, does not merely have a subjective aspect. Faith has, first and foremost, an objective sense. The Christian faith, you see, is not wishful thinking. The Christian faith is not bland hope or optimism. The Christian faith is not based on something imagined or fantastical. It's not an emotional state of giddiness. The Christian faith is founded upon the Christian faith. The revelation of God in his word. Our faith is rooted in the historical redemptive work of Jesus Christ revealed to us in scripture. Our faith's foundation is the objective redemption and revelation of Jesus, his person and his work. Believe. Believe in who? Believe in him. And those who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There can be no true personal biblical faith where the Christian faith objectively understood has been tampered with, distorted, amended, corrupted, denied, or not transmitted. The Christian faith rather must be preserved, maintained, taught, defended, faithfully transmitted, faithfully received without addition or subtraction. And that's why you see, with those foundation stones in place, you understand why then the catechism goes on to talk about the Apostles' Creed. Right? It talks about the necessity of believing in the subjective sense. But then it says, you are to believe in what? Well, you are to believe in all that God has promised us, a summary of which is found in the Apostles' Creed. Right? We don't believe in ourselves. We don't have faith in faith. We don't have some kind of humanistic optimism. No, we believe our lives are founded upon the word of God. Our lives are founded upon this Christian faith. That was given to the church as Jude 3 says. That was once for all delivered to the saints. And is expressed in the church's creeds. The church's confessions. The church's catechisms. This Christian faith is not private. But the public witness of the church. This Christian faith doesn't belong to just a, a few enlightened individuals. It belongs to the church. This Christian faith in its objective sense is publicly verifiable because it's not based on the whims or opinions of an individual. This Christian faith must be consistent with scripture and not contradicted because it, there, there can't be no Christian faith that's not born out of scripture. This Christian faith is what the Bible repeatedly calls the apostolic deposit and witness. So in some What's the danger, right? We, we would, as Christians in modern America, we would understand the danger of not personally believing, right, in Jesus Christ, 
right? If you don't have the subjective sense of faith, you, you, you will perish. You are condemned, right? That seems clear enough. But what's the danger of dismissing the objective sense of faith, the Christian faith? What's the danger of trying to hold to a Christian faith without the Christian faith? What is the danger of trying to confess the truth without confessing the truth as it has been passed down for generations in scripturally faithful, churchly vetted, public, objective, definite, and clear statements of the faith? So in other words, what, what's the danger of holding to your personal belief but dismissing the Apostles' Creed, dismissing what the church has taught over the years in faithfulness to God? The danger is that you're trying to build a structure without the foundation. You're trying to emphasize belief and trust, but never in who or in what. And in short time, you see what happens, and, and you see this all throughout the modern American church. In time, you will have no Christianity. You will have no church. You will have no spiritual health, only ignorance, heresy, divisiveness, and lies. You cannot have personal Christian faith without the objective Christian faith, without the historical record of God's works faithfully passed down by the church throughout time. That's the danger that in effect you will not have Christianity. So why do we need, why do we need to hold on to the faithful creeds and confessions of the church? Why do we need to hold on to, in the objective sense, the Christian faith? Why do we need to do what Jude 3 says? To contend for the Christian faith. Because by holding to the Christian faith, you see, you will have knowledge of who God is. You will have knowledge of His Word and of His world. And you will enjoy spiritual health and soundness. You will walk in God's truth, secure in your faith in Christ. And a faith that is shared with countless other generations throughout time. By holding on to the Christian faith in its objective sense, you will have the possibility of passing the faith to the next generation. Faithfully holding on to the Christian faith means that you will have the church and you will have Christianity in this generation and in generations to come. So we are called, beloved, in some, not only to trust, not only to entrust our lives to God, but we are called to entrust our lives to God, the God in his word, the savior who has saved us according to what God reveals in holy scripture. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> our father and our God, how we thank you for saving us and creating in us, Lord, as we confess here this morning through your spirit, this trust, this faith. Father, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't bubble up from within. Father, it is created in us by the Spirit. And Father, may we continue to trust and believe Christ and trusting our very destinies to our Savior. And Father, we would never go astray from what you have revealed and what your church has taught faithfully throughout millennia. And that Father... Possessing the faith, we would believe it, we would walk in it, we would transmit it to our children and to others, Father, who are being brought in to the church, 
to know Christ. Hear us for these things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.